As I'm sure most people do, I vividly remember my first conversation with Anastasia. It was one of those conversations that quickly goes from, Hi, my name is Ty, to talking about deep childhood scars and embarrassing stories. Anastasia's got a way of making you feel like your voice is the only one in the room and that she's listening to it with all of her heart. Knowing the person she is makes the story you're about to hear all the more upsetting. Anastasia's a friend of mine, so I first heard about her sexual assault not too long after it happened to her. But I knew it wasn't going to be an easy story for her to tell. It's a tough thing to ask someone to recount, let alone to ask them to tell about it in front of an audience of strangers. If you can't tell by now, Anastasia is one of the most courageous people I know, and I knew she would have told me if she wasn't ready. As it turns out, she was ready. I'm Tai Chu, and this is Listen for a Change a podcast amplifying the unique stories from the invisible among us. We find the voices you don't often hear. We empower them to heal around their experiences using storytelling, and we turn up the volume to open up all of our hearts and minds. This isn't just storytelling. This is an intervention to restore compassion. You know Anastasia is in a room because you can hear her laughter from the outside. Her spirit radiates into all of her relationships and the work that she does with youth in the Bay Area. She is able to balance intuitive emotional perception with a genuine smile in a way that makes you feel like you're her oldest friend. It's with that same authenticity that she tells a story that will be hard for all of us to hear. A word of warning, this story deals with explicit sexual violence. Here now, we listen to Anastasia's story as it was told at our May 2017 Story Hour in Oakland. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Molly is slightly intimidating. Um, So just a disclaimer, just a couple of disclaimers. One, uh, the story is really intense and uh, will likely make people uncomfortable. If that's not what you signed up for tonight, then I will pause and you can just walk out casually or you can stay. (laughs) Um, Second disclaimer is that this is a highly personal story to me. Um, I have some notes that I will be using. Please don't mind. Um, And then the third disclaimer is that I'll be talking about sexual violence and sexual assault. This story is specific to my experience, or one of my experiences, Um, but I also want to note that survivors of sexual assault and sexual violence come in a variety of different demographics, and um, I don't want to, I want to pay tribute to their stories and their experiences as well. So this is for all of those people. Okay, also, last disclaimer, I might cry. I've already cried once today. I got my tissues ready. I got people to support me. Speaking openly about sexual assault makes people uncomfortable. It's a topic that no one wants to talk about because people don't know how to talk about it and sometimes they think 
that if they don't talk about it, then it probably won't happen. That's incorrect. Sexual thought happens, and not talking about it makes its presence that much messier. My story of sexual assault is not unique. In fact, I imagine that there are a handful of people in this room who have similar stories to tell. Every few months, we hear coverage in the news about people who have experienced sexual assault or other forms of sexual violence. We are outraged. We share petitions. We sign, or we sign petitions. We share articles on Facebook. We ask, how could this have happened? We'll hear about the incident and potentially any closure that comes. But what's often untold and misunderstood is the story of the aftermath and how much more traumatic that can be. It was 2.28 a.m. and I stood in my kitchen. My mind was racing, my body was shutting down. I knew that I needed to tell someone because there was a possibility I would wake up in the morning overwhelmed with confusion and guilt and shame and not want to tell anyone. My old roommate was working a night shift at the hospital, so I picked up the phone and called her. I told her what had happened, that about an hour earlier, I had been raped. I told her I was okay, and that I was tired, and that I was going to bed. The next day, I spent a total of 12 hours at the hospital. This wasn't the first time I had ever been raped, but this was the first time I ever reported it. Sometimes your story is easier to believe if you can prove it with physical evidence. So they checked me. My clothes were confiscated. My body was examined for hours. I stood naked while the nurse held a ruler to various bruises on my body and photographed them. I had swabs inserted into me. My vagina smeared with cold paint to check for abrasions. A camera pointed right between my legs. The most vivid memory that I have from that day was sitting in the room. After all of the physical exams were done, waiting for the police officers. At that point, I didn't actually think the situation could get worse. But when the detectives arrived, they wanted to see the, the documentation of physical evidence. I can't quite articulate the combination of punishment and violation and humiliation that is sitting in a room with two men whom you have never met, standing in front of you, looking at pictures of your vagina, commenting on the magnitude of your vaginal abrasions as if you're not even there. To be physically present, to be fully clothed, and yet to feel so invisible and so exposed. Okay, round one. Pause. Okay. <laughs> I was given shots to prevent sexually transmitted infections, and pills to prevent pregnancy and HIV. 
Tombavir. That's the name of the medicine that they gave me as HIV post-exposure. The nurse told me that these pills would reduce my risk of contracting HIV, that side effects were normal and that I should get retested for HIV in one month, in three months, in six months, because sometimes the results don't show up immediately. What she didn't tell me was that these pills would make me feel like a stranger to myself, that I would experience nausea for 30 days straight, that I would have recurring nightmares, that moving my body in the world would feel like moving through a sea of molasses. The irony of these shots and these pills is that HIV, STIs, and pregnancies in this situation could also be prevented if we took sexual violence more seriously. I spent most of my time that day in the hospital answering questions, first from nurses, then from doctors, then from police officers, then from more nurses, then from more doctors, then from more police officers. I realize that the story, I realize that the story that you want to share is not always the story that others want you to tell. What were you wearing? Were you drinking? What were you drinking? How much did you drink? How quickly? Are you sure? Where were you at the bar? What did you do when you got there? Where in the bar were you standing? Where in the bar did you move to next? Why did you leave your friends? Were you flirting with him? Why were you flirting with him? Why did you give him your number? What did you two talk about? Why did you go home with him? Would you say you willingly got into a taxi with him? When you got into the taxi, which direction did it go? How long was the ride? How many blocks did the taxi go before it turned right? How many blocks did the taxi continue straight? Did he live in an apartment or a house? When you got to his neighborhood, what side of the street did he live on? Where was the gate? Was there a gate? What color was his front door? What color was the facade of the building? How many stairs were there? How many rooms? How many people did he live with? How did you know, what did you notice about his apartment? What did you do when you got there? Did you go to his bedroom? Did you lay down? Do you remember what time that was at? What side of the bed were you on? Did you see him lock the door? Did you intend to sleep with him? Are you sure you saw him lock the door? At what point of the night did he lock the door? How did he pin you down? How long were you pinned down? What happened next? You said he licked your nipple. How many times did that happen? Did he penetrate you vaginally, orally, anally? How many times was that? Was it consensual? Did you give him any idea you wanted him to penetrate you? Did you know other people were home? Why didn't you think to scream if you knew his roommates were home? Would you say that he knew you didn't want him to have intercourse with you? Did you tell him to stop? I explicitly said, please don't do this. But you never said no. People often wonder why more survivors of sexual violence don't report. Well, telling the world your story means not only having to relive it, but also having faith that you will be met with compassion and affirmation rather than disbelief, blame, and criticism. Here I was, hours after having been physically violated, trying to recall the night in excruciating detail, answering questions set up as if trying to uncover any possible loopholes in my story. There's something incredibly cruel about being raped and then having to 
Prove the validity of what happened by remembering the smallest details from an incident you want nothing more than to forget. I was not allowed to forget the pain of something that no one believed could even happen in the first place. There are so many things people try to tell you about being raped. People will say, this is what happened, this is why it happened, and this is how we can prevent it from happening again. But there are way more things that people will not tell you. Like, it might be hard to call what happened to you rape. And if you ever finally name it, you will be questioned about the decisions that you made leading up to the incident. You will be advised to be more careful next time. You'll be told that there are things you could have done to prevent it. You'll be told that you have the power to stop others from being raped by reporting it. People will say, you should report this. But no one will say, this is what to expect as you're reporting. This is what to expect in the aftermath. No one tells you that the police may ask you to call your perpetrator and have a casual conversation with him as they listen in in hopes that he will admit that he raped you. No one tells you that it might take months for your rape kit to be analyzed, that as you're trying your best to accept and move on, you might receive a phone call telling you that your rape kit has been processed and no, there won't be sufficient evidence to move forward in pressing charges. No one tells you that because there is not sufficient evidence to press charges, you will likely run into the man who raped you, maybe at a coffee shop, or maybe even just crossing the street. No one talks about how you can't fake your way into believing that it didn't happen, or about the numbness that will likely set in. No one talks about the emotional roller coaster of desperately wanting to forget everything that happened, and desperately trying to hold on to everything, every detail, every emotion, for fear that no one will believe you or that they'll think that your pain is unjustified. No one says, it's going to be exhausting navigating the pain and the hate and the rage that you develop towards other people, but mostly that you develop towards yourself. No one tells you that the world will want you to remain silent, because it allows everyone to pretend like you're unchanged by the violence, that the world is safe for women, that we are not individually a part of this problem. No one tells you that your motivation to get out of bed will dwindle, that your ability to maintain friendships will lessen, or that your confidence will be impacted. No one says your performance at work or school will likely suffer, and your ability to both trust and love yourself is going to decline. I want everyone to think about your favorite part of your personality. Maybe that's your independence, or your charisma, or your intelligence. Now imagine that this part of you has been taken, and you will never get it back. Imagine you are told that you are the reason it is gone. That's what the ap aftermath of light, rape is like. Figuring out how to live with the very parts of you that you cherish having been taken from you. 
No one says people will look at you differently after you tell them you've survived sexual violence or people will love you differently. Those around you will expect an emotional performance based on their belief of how a rape survivor, survivor behaves and feels. Pretending to be fearful or pretending to be strong because that's who the world expects you to be is this person with a new identity you never asked for. And when you try to find a way to deal with what happened to you on your own terms, someone, someone will step in to correct your decision. Once again, reminding you that your body is not your own. I remember months after this happened, I told my partner at the time what had happened to me previously and asked him if we could practice verbal consent in bed in order to support my own process of healing, to which he responded that I was accusing him of making me do things I didn't want to do and using it as an excuse to not have sex. No one told me that my body would burn with rage, that anger would exist within me and there would be no rightful way to express it. No one told me that PTSD is common that it's as if I'm a veteran of an unnamed war, a war that I never saw coming, a war I never asked to fight, a war that has no expiration. No one said that the memories might flood back when I'm least expecting, or that I should anticipate sleepless nights and dreams that may never fully leave. No one warned me that things would get better, that things would get worse before they got better or that things might never actually be the same. Most importantly, no one told me that trauma would transform me, that eventually the suffering would strengthen me, but that I would need to fight and continue fighting like hell to hold on to the person I have known and the world that I have rebuilt. That it'll be exhausting, but in the end, my love and my compassion and my gratitude for the world will be that much deeper because of it. Amidst everything that is told or left untold about sexual assault and sexual violence, the most important thing is what I tell myself every day, and it is this. I am not my trauma. I am because of my trauma, but I am not my trauma. Instead, I am the creator of my brave new world, and no one can take that away. I show up to a nondescript door in an area of San Francisco surrounded by offices and warehouses. This is where Anastasia works. It is a center for systems-involved youth. She greets me at the door and gives me a quick tour. I find a brand new space with sparse decorations that I later learn is in development, led by the youth who will make it their own. I sit down to hear more about what compelled Anastasia to share her story and to hear about the changes in her life since she told it two years ago. All right. 
<laughs> well, thank you for sitting down with me. This was, um, I, you know, I, it took a lot of scheduling, but I'm glad we finally got to make it happen. I wanted to start off by kind of revisiting your story. Um, and I wanted to, to get to know a little bit more about your reason, if you had one, for deciding that it was the right time for you to share that story. So was there something that happened? Like, how did you, other than me approaching you and asking you, I know you had to think about it a little bit. How did you know that you were at a place where you felt like you could share something so intimate? I think for me, the reason I decided to share my story was because it's, you hear a lot about, um, sexual assault and sexual violence happening to people. And you don't hear a lot about the aftermath of what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of what's happened to me, because of my own experiences, the aftermath has actually been the most challenging part of my own healing process. In a lot of ways, because nobody talks about it and because I haven't had space to really explore that story or that continuation, um, it has felt incredibly isolating in ways, you know? Um, and I think when you had actually approached me, it was right around like the one year anniversary actually, Mm -hmm. um, of the story that I was actually talking about. And It was almost like a commitment that I had made to myself, not only to make room um, for this conversation amongst other people, but to really make room for myself to feel the different things that I felt as a result of the experiences I had been through. Um, And so I think it came at... I don't believe in perfection, but I think it came at a really important time for me to not only like validate my own um, experiences and validate what I had been through, but also to validate the emotions that I was feeling as a result of it. Mm. I think most often... Any type of trauma for me, the way I think about it is that it, you're you're going through a process of, um, it's almost like a grief process, right? Something happens and then you have to learn how to be okay with it or, um, you know, make peace with what's happened. And part of making peace with what had happened um, was being able to tell my story. Take me back to, sorry, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to revisit that time in your story once again, um, and feel free not to mm-hmm. answer anything that you don't want to, but take me back to that moment, or at least that first time in which you were at the police station reporting the incident, and you spend a lot of time in your story talking about the ways in which you felt like you weren't supported there Mm -hmm. and that there were things happening there that was not making the situation better. Mm -hmm. 
how would you have liked the police officers to have handled the situation better? Mm. Like, imagine if you had a captive audience of police officers in the room who have (laughs) to deal with cases of sexual violence and assault with the people Mm -hmm. after it has happened. What would you tell them? So, actually... I filed my police report at the hospital, which in some ways is maybe a good thing. In some ways, um, might have been more challenging um, because the environment of the hospital is already very sterile, very cold. And so to be somebody who's experienced that and then to have to have these like very cold interactions with police officers... Mm. I think was really challenging. Um, I will say that I, the nurse that I had worked with, um, who actually did a lot of the exams for me was such an angel. Mm. Um, but getting back to your question, I think the main takeaway that I have, I mean, there's so many things from making sure that, um, like, when they're triaging, they understand that there was a male perpetrator and then not sending male officers. Mm. Or um, when they're reviewing photos and commenting on them, that they're not doing it in front of whoever's been directly impacted. Um to, like, the questions and, like, the mode of questioning um, and the tone of questioning that they ask. I remember a big part of the story that I shared was, like, the question after question after question after question after question that you're asked to somebody who has undergone sexual violence. And my biggest takeaway from... That specific encounter was how necessary it is to try and build empathy for Mm -hmm. whoever's on the other side. Um, Because I think for the officers that, the multiple officers that I had to talk to, they were just doing their job you know, and I don't, as much as they wanted to care, the, inherently their job and like the way that they have to respond to things makes it such that they can't, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense, but because they see it so often, it's almost like, their responses are just so it's automated. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. almost. Right? You have to remove, in some ways, you have to remove the emotion from the process. Yeah. Or at least that's what was communicated. Um, and that was the tone that was set. But I think there, there needs to be some way to keep that emotion intact. You know, um, 
I mean, it, it in a lot of ways, it might be the little things. It might be that I actually had to talk to two separate sets of police officers and recount the entire story both times. I think over the course of 12 hours, I had to retell the story like four or five times, mm. which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and answer the same questions over and over. And at a certain point, like as somebody who's gone through something really intense, our memory already is a little bit foggy, but then also like you start to hear people questioning you in this very matter of fact way. And you really start to question yourself about what you remember, what you saw, what you said. Exactly. Right. Since their reaction clearly is different. Right. And so I don't know that I have anything I would overwhelmingly say. If there were officers standing in front of me. Um, but I have like those key takeaways from our process, mm-hmm. from the process. And I think in a lot of ways that having to, uh, having to go through that entire experience has really shaped how I interact with people now. I can imagine what it is that you're trying to say and that it, I, I do think that there is a way to kind of walk that line of objectivity, but also try to be a little bit more empathetic. Um, I feel like a lot of therapists have to do that mm-hmm. often, mm-hmm. right? And so, I don't know, I think you're on to something. Yeah, I mean, it, even in the way that I think I was asked questions, it almost, there wasn't space made for me as somebody who had just gone through something really traumatic to not be definitive about what I was saying, Mm -hmm. you know, like I had to be very clear and be very confident in what I was saying in order to even, you know, to even make people um, listen to me Yeah. or much less like have them believe what I was saying, you know? Um, And I think that that is the really challenging part because there's so much about the process that's already really invalidating and about, like, what actually happened prior to that um, with the incident itself. And so the fact that you're trying to convince people that something happened, that, like, in in so many other worlds I would want to forget. Right. Um, I think is a really is the really challenging part. You're also a very well spoken person, I think. Thank I you. can say that. Um, and you know, formally educated, and mm-hmm. you know, you're in a, a position, a professional position, and all of these things that allow you probably like, give you a leg up on even being able to formulate mm-hmm. your words and to paint a picture. And to be able to advocate your, for yourself verbally, where I imagine many people out there, um, due to whatever life experiences and circumstances, might not be able to advocate for themselves in the same way. Do you ever think about that? I think about that all the time. I, <laughs> um, I think about that when I am like walking down the street and there are people who are trying to get on the bus and nobody's helping them get on the bus, you know, or when I am 
um, at work. And a lot of the young people that I work with are folks who have been in and out of different systems, whether that's juvenile justice and probation or foster care or um, have been or currently sex workers or have been trafficked or exploited in some way. Um, and the main thing that I think about when it comes to that type of um, going back to your question is how people judge what we have to say and the words that come out of our mouth based on our experiences, mm. you know? Um, and because a lot of the young people I work with come from life experiences that have been much harder and much more challenging a lot of people just don't trust or validate what they say, even though they actually have the best solutions for themselves, you mm-hmm. know, and in a lot of ways have a very different sense of reality and sense of the world that I think a lot of us can learn from. Um, but I experienced the same thing, like going to grad school and all of a sudden, I had letters after my name, and people took me more seriously, mm. right? Or believed things that I said in a different way, um, or would be willing to sit down with me to talk or, and or listen to what I had to say because there was a sense of academia, there was the sense of privilege behind what I was saying. Mm. Um, and so much of the work that I do now is trying to get young folks who have been, like I mentioned, systems involved um, or have been trafficked or exploited in some way, getting them seat at the table so that people listen to them. And not because they are these they are these people with these specific experiences that define them. I don't think that those experiences do define who they are. We're trying to get them seats at the table because they deserve to be listened to and deserve to be taken seriously in the same way that I or you or anyone who has different life experiences or a different sense of privilege um, are taken seriously. Um, it's been a couple years since the incident mm-hmm. that you spoke about. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back on it, do you have any new perspective than mm. when you told the story? Hmm. You know, the the other day someone was telling me that one of the things that they love most about me is that I smile a lot. Um, and I am just, like, overwhelmingly a really positive happy, joyful person that likes to laugh and likes to have, you know, lots of uh, joyful moments. And I can confirm that. (laughs) (laughs) Your laugh is, lights up a room. (laughs) Thanks, Ty. Um, But they were like, I just don't understand how you stay so positive and are so happy and joyful 
despite what's happening in the world, despite the things that you've been through. And I remember, like, thinking about that and reflecting about it because so much of who I am has been shaped by the experiences that I've gone through, whether they've been positive experiences or negative experiences. And I think about how in the aftermath of this incident of sexual assault, I I built a lot of strength and resilience from it, you know? And I, in some ways, I've had to be that positive, happy, joyful person because of what I've been through, right? Mm -hmm. There's actually no room for me to be anything else in some ways. But it's not forced. It's not forced. It's like my natural state of being. Okay. It's almost reactionary, would you say? I don't I don't think it's reactionary. What I mean by when I say that my experiences have made me this way, what I mean is I have, my North Star has to be in some ways like joy and strength and happiness and resilience because to let it be anything else would, and to really reflect on like the trauma and the painful experiences that Mm -hmm. I've been would in some ways make my world crumble, you know, um, it's because I think it's because I d- I don't know how to describe it to be honest, mm. but in a sense, it's like this cyclical relationship, you know, mm. that I have been, and maybe it's just like an ability to think positively, right? Um, But to me, positivity isn't about, like, just being happy and pretending that things aren't real, right? And pretending, like, really painful things haven't happened to me or to other people. It's about... It's about recognizing that painful things have happened and deep trauma has occurred and I've worked through them, Mm. you know, um, and been able to come out on the other side in a way that teaches me more about who I am. Thank you for sharing both your story, but also taking the time and, emotional and mental energy to revisit that with us. Um, I'm sure your story will reach a lot of people out there who will be able to relate to it, but also those who might not and raise awareness. Um, And speaking of raising awareness, um, I wanted to ask you about the organization that you had chosen the night that you told your story, 
um, to represent. It's an organization called MISSY, which is M-I-S-S-S, three S's, E-Y, dot org. And a little bit about the work that they do. And then I also want you, you hinted a little bit at this already, but talk about the work that you do with youth who are systems involved and or may have been exploited um, themselves. Sure. Um, so like you said, the organization that I chose to raise awareness and also money for um, at the time of my story was Missy. They're an organization based out of Oakland, um, and they do a lot of direct work and also political advocacy um, around young folks who are being trafficked, so human trafficked or sexually exploited, um, to help them rebuild stability, gain stability, access resources, and um, just be able to enjoy their lives. Um, I chose them because they their mission is very dear to my heart and also to like my own lived experiences. Um, and they're doing really powerful work in Oakland. Um, and the topic of trafficking and sexual exploitation is one that does not get a lot of lip service. Mm. Um, on a larger scale. Um, and then the organization that I am working with is called Freedom Forward. Um, we're an organization that works with um, young folks who are systems involved um, and or who have also been trafficked um, and sexually exploited or who are currently sex workers um, or who are formerly been sex workers, to where we basically recognize that there is a direct link between systems involvement and exploitation or um, human trafficking. And so we're trying to shift how the city works with young folks um, who have seen or been through those lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And we're also trying to shift how we think about sex work in general, um, because we know it can be a really positive experience um, and a really empowering experience. Um, and want to shift the conversation and the narrative around how we do sex work safely um, that is out of an exploitive, out of a trafficking environment. Mm. Well, thank you for those. Both of those organizations sound great. I urge people to check both of them out. Um, I want to end finally with a question that we ask all of our um, storytellers, and that is, other than the story that you shared on stage, what is your untold story? What is that one experience of your life that has truly defined who you are but that you don't often share with people on a day-to-day basis for fear of how it might be received or for lack of an opportunity to do so? Hmm. What a powerful question. I think the story that comes to mind right now is 
that I was actually raised by my grandparents. And I, they are no longer with me in this world, physically, but spiritually and emotionally will always be with me. Um, but ultimately, I am my grandfather's granddaughter, and I keep his memory alive by the ways that I love, the ways that I laugh, and the ways that I show up for other people. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Welcome. Can we hug it out? Of course. <laughs> so thank you, Anastasia, and just for all the work that you do, and I'm sure that the world will continue hearing about you and all the stories that you have to share because you are such an incredible and dominable spirit, and we need more Anastasia in our lives. Thank you, Chai. <laughs> it's such an honor to be interviewed. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, be sure to check out listenchange.org to find our next in-person story hour and to learn about our storytelling workshops. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our production team for this episode is Tunde Demurin and Isaac Silk. I'm Tai Chu. And remember, a story untold is simply a thought. <laughs>